Hello, it's Jack Tutor here of Attention Magazine. Welcome to Crucial Listening, the podcast where I speak with musicians and sound artists about three albums that are important to them. My guest this time is MJ Guider, the project of Melissa Guyon. Melissa's new album, Sour Cherry Bell, just came out on Cranky last month, the same label that released her previous album, Precious Systems. And like Precious Systems, this new record is a masterclass in echo-drenched songcraft. She has the most amazing handling of space and reverb. You get so many different harmonics flourishing off her instruments. You just hear them ricocheting around space and colliding together to the point where she can let things drone for so long. And while there's a compositional stillness, there's acoustically so much movement. And yet, things don't get lost. Melissa writes really hard-hitting songs. I think she knows when to throttle back on the echoes to let things really punch you in the gut, especially in terms of the beats and the sub-bass there. But the songs themselves are also just beautiful and catchy as well. The melodies have this wilting darkness to them, this shadow play that I absolutely love. This record is wonderful and just keeps getting deeper and richer every time I listen to it. So Sour Cherry Bell on Cranky. Check it out at mjguider.bandcamp.com. You can also go to mjguider.com. And as always, head over to attentionmagazine.co.uk forward slash crucial listening for more information on Melissa's picks and links to her music as well. Hope you enjoy this conversation. There is a brief period of popping near the beginning that disappears after a couple of minutes so just bear with it i thought it was worth keeping the audio in because melissa's answers during that period are really interesting and enjoy this conversation this is melissa guyon mj guider on crucial listening Hi, Melissa. Welcome to Crucial Listening. Hi, Jack. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for coming on. So you're here to talk about three important records. Before we get stuck into that, I want to touch on your new album, Sour Cherry Bell, just recently came out. It's absolutely fabulous. Um, So to begin with, uh, I mean, I understand from the text that I read accompanying the record that this was in part about pushing your existing setup to its limits. I mean, could you talk to me a bit about the tools that you're you're using here and, and why you wanted to ring them out in this way? Yeah, I have um, a pretty small but solid array of instruments and gadgets that I've been using for a while that I'm very familiar with. I've um, used them over the prior record and the EP prior to that. And um, I kind of like the idea of keeping a limited palette because, you know, there are infinite possibilities. You can get a million pieces of software that, that make any kind of sound that you want, or you can bring in new instruments and, and new sounds to realize this idea in your head very precisely. But to me, there's a lot more interesting sounds that come out of trying to make what you're imagining with the tools that you already have. So Mm. I really like, you know, going to my, you know, five things that are my core sound and, and trying to replicate what it is that I hear in my mind and, and seeing what comes of that, because most of the time it's not exact. It doesn't come out just the way that you intended, but it's more interesting and you end up with some really um, exciting uh, ideas that, that come from just like trying to, to manipulate these few things to do something bigger than what they're meant to do. So mainly I use bass guitar and I have a drum machine. I use a Roland R8, um, like a 
early 90s, late 80s drum machine. I've got a few of them. The one that I'm using now is the second generation, so it has a lot of onboard sounds that are mainly old, um, older Roland drum machine samples, but they have this like really specific digital quality to them that I mm. think is is. You know, I grew up listening to music made by these drum machines, so it has this very like nostalgic quality to me. Um, and then I have some tape machines. I have a Roland Chorus Echo that I run almost everything through, and guitar, and you know, um, a few one-off like piano and flute, um, kind of mixed in there, and samples. But other than that, you know, I didn't want to bring in, you know, a new synthesizer or a new. Um, anything else that I wasn't familiar with because I thought, okay, if I limit myself, then that takes that off the table. It takes that sort of like, okay, well, how do I, what do I need to buy or bring in to do what I want? I already have these things here and I know how to use them really well. So why not start there and, and make them just bend to my will. (laughs) And uh, ultimately that's, that ended up producing not again, the exact result that I wanted, but something more interesting um that i'm really pleased with i mean i guess one thing about using a consistent setup is that the risk is perhaps being entrenched in habits like looking at the same equipment or you know same software and being like right i know how to navigate this so well and there's certain kind of efficient lanes that i take whenever i do i mean it certainly does not sound like that's happened with this record in comparison with precious systems like this record has its whole own atmospheric space so but but were there there ways in which you thought had to break what you would normally do with this familiar setup in order to 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 bring some new energy to what you were doing yeah in in a way my actual recording process was a little bit different um the first record especially with uh, the drum patterns i would program the whole song from start to finish and then just record it. And then a lot of the instrumentation was done completely live. And there wasn't a lot of like overdubs and there wasn't a lot of cut and paste. But this time I did do a lot more shifting around of um, like I would record a small short pattern and then I would kind of cut it up and move it, move it to, to, to be a longer pattern within the software instead of doing it in the hardware itself. And then same goes for... Um, the live instruments, instead of like just sitting down, hitting record, and then playing from start to finish, I would record in chunks and kind of layer things and um, do more on the production side of it as far as constructing what the sound was going to be um, melodically instead of just like playing. So yeah, in that way, even though I was doing the same things at the start, what I ended up doing with those pieces was was different and was new. And so I think maybe that made a difference in how it came across. Because mm. am I right in saying you did more home recording this time as opposed to spending time in your, your rehearsal space? I mean, did that open up, I guess, new processes that perhaps weren't time limited in the same way? Yeah, it really did because my time at that at that rehearsal studio is limited. So, you know, if I sit down and I start messing with a song after, a, you know, X amount of time, I have to get up and leave no matter where I am. In it. And that kind of breaks up your, your focus and, and it, it ultimately changes, you know, where you could have gone because something that you would maybe be able to do had you not gotten out of the chair, you know, three hours later, I was able to do that at home because I was, you know, without limits as far as how long I could spend with it. And, and I would often spend much longer in one single sitting at home because it's way easier to do than I would if I was outside of the house and I had to get up and like go eat a meal or something or, <laughs> yeah. you know, go and walk the dog. You know, it's, it just, it had, it had no, um, time constraints whatsoever, which to me is, is both good and bad, but you know, as, as far as it, uh, giving me the freedom to really dive in and go as deep as possible with things, then it was much better to be able to do that that for my house. One thing that I often hear about happening when I speak to people about making their records is that there's maybe a first track that slots into place and then things kind of get easier from there. I mean, was there a track on Sour Cherry Bell that came together first that sort of paved the way forward for you making this album? You know, I don't think so. I I tend to record um, 
things very like piecemeal as far as the tracks go like I don't sit down and do a track and finish a track and then move on do a track and finish a track so I have like a whole I have this whole big folder of like numbered and lettered files of of like songs in varying states and and typically you know I'll sit down and I'll do like a scratch um, kind of demo style thing to start. And then I don't necessarily go and continue to work on that. I'll jump to another one. So I can't tell you what the first song was that became more of a realized song and, and, and everything sprung from there because there really wasn't that with this record. Everything kind of started moving in a direction of, of completion together Hmm. um so you know i can look and see which ones i had started earlier (laughs) but i couldn't tell you where the light went off and i was like okay now i'm going because i don't i don't think that that happened with this record fair um i mean one one question i did want to ask as well which is maybe quite specific i don't know if you can divulge these secrets but one thing that i think really resonates for me excuse the pun is that your treatment of of reverb and echo throughout i mean this record and pressure systems but i felt with so much more on 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 this album is just the 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 amount of beautiful harmonics that you get ricocheting around the space and the sense of texture that you get from the reverbs that you're using um is such a delight uh i'm absolutely obsessed with it i mean what can you (laughs) tell me about your process for for using reverb like um yeah there are ways that you approach it you think to get that sound that that you do um i think it's just the combination of things um reverb on bass is is kind of its own beast to contend with and (laughs) i can i can tell you now having toured a couple of times that it's it's a sound person's biggest enemy apparently (laughs) Um, but in recording you don't have those limitations so i really i pile it on with a, a, a variety of things both hardware and software and um it's it's tricky because you don't want to go so far as to make you know a a soup of sound Mm. but um i found that leaving it off of some things does give you that depth where you're able to really hear the levels of things without overwhelming with this like wash and and being like extremely careful about you know not not going too far because it's so easy to just keep piling it on because to my ears, the more I hear it, the more I'm like, yes, this is beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> I'm creating the sonic world. Um, but, but yeah, it does, it does have a lot to do with having a bit of restraint. And, uh, that to me is probably like the, the key to, to getting it right and not just, um, overwhelming every element with it. Uh, and, and yeah, it does, it does require, like being conscious, like, okay, well, I've got 17 tracks on this album. Let me, let me go through and, and make sure I'm hearing everything, at least in some way. And it, there isn't something just getting completely washed into the mix because mm. I'm over reverbing it. But yeah. And I, and I do find that, um, having a variety of, of tools to make that instead of just like dropping a reverb plugin on something is, uh, is kind of a, a way to make it more interesting because especially, like I use a, an RE501 for a lot of things and it has uh, a spring reverb on it and I actually turn it off completely for the, for most of the things, but sometimes I want the specific sound that that makes. And, and so you kind of get to know like what of the things that you use go best with the, the other, you know, tools that you have to, to process the sound. And, and so I have like a full like pedal board that's specifically for bass and guitar and I have reverb pedal that I like, and I have a reverb rack unit that I like, and I have this, you know, one big box on my desk that has, you know, this spring reverb that I like, and then I have a couple of reverb plugins that I like, and then I don't go and and find more ways to do it because then you go too far. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it's interesting what you say about as well, knowing no how to throttle back because, you know, we were talking offline about how the album really does hit hard in terms of the bass frequencies and you know something like the steel yard feels like it's definitely pulling on that where you've got 
some real low frequencies there that that, that feel very close to you and and uh you know in close proximity and, and hit, are hitting very hard and i guess if you wash them out too much then that impact's gone right yeah yeah because sometimes you want to be able to feel the bass especially when it's something like in the in the kick or when it's a really like driving bass line um putting too much reverb on it does soften it more than you know in, in some cases that might be what you want but yeah for the steel yard you want it to kind of like have that physicality to it and and knowing you know at what point you're pushing the reverb to to go too far mm. um and, and not crossing that line is kind of uh you know you have to keep that in mind in order to to be able to like get that that thump and have it be like hard enough where you can maybe feel it if you're in the car <laughs> yes yes exactly um well it's such an excellent record um where thank you so much no worries where can people check it out where's the best place for them to go to find out more uh band camp uh, the whole record is up on there on the cranky band camp um and my website has links to all that mjguider.com and uh yeah, there's a couple of videos up on YouTube for two of the songs. I hope to make more videos, but um, so far there are videos for Simulus and FM Secure, and those are on YouTube. Cool. Now let's talk about your three important records. And one question I like to ask before we dive in is how you thought about these, uh, sorry, how you thought about the word important when you were picking this list of three albums. Was there a particular way that you understood that word in order to come up with a list of albums that you did yeah uh well first i think you should know that that's like an impossible task to just come up with three <laughs> crucial records um, yeah i get told this every me, time and yeah i, I persist nonetheless it's it's like, that's that's nice that you're you're still uh <laughs> making people torment their their record collections with try trying to best. come up with three but yeah the um the way that I was able to pick them is by coming up with like a very specific parameter for deciding, you know, like get, get, make, make a theme out of it and then, and then choose three based on the theme. So I kind of thought, you know, because this record just came out, like what were three records that were important to the process and all three of the records that I chose had some role early on in the recording process when I was first getting started in their own ways um, and they they struck me for their own reasons but all three of them um, meant something to me as I was getting going. Cool interesting well let's dive in I'll let you pick which one you want to talk about first if you give me the name of it and then a little bit about why it's important to you as well. Okay, um, I guess I'll go in chronological order. Uh, the first one that I chose was Peter Gabriel's third self-titled album, Melt. Mm. The, you know, the the name that people have to call it because it's one of his four self-titled albums. <laughs> um, that uh, I think that's a real power move to name multiple records after yourself. Right. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but he he did it, and uh, this one is called melt because of the way the album cover looks it's like this um it's a hypnosis design album cover with like a polaroid of him where half of his face is like sliding off mm. um so i chose this one because this is an album that i don't i don't know when i got it but i feel like it's always been in my record collection and it's not one that I know I permanently borrowed from my parents when I moved out for college. <laughs> it's, it's it's probably something I bought when I was in college and and have revisited pretty frequently. Every couple of years, I'll, I'll, I'll put it on and I'll remember, oh God, this is such a great record. Um, and I was doing that right around when I started working on Sour Cherry Bell. And um, I don't usually unless I get extremely deep in a record or in an artist's catalog, I don't tend to go digging for information about them and like reading a lot of like deep details because I want to be familiar with something before I go and like learn a lot of things about it. Mm -hmm. But this time I went and, and did a little bit of digging and, and was reading about the recording process and a lot of the things that uh, went into the making of this record. And one of the things that I read about it was that Peter Gabriel basically forbade 
all symbols in the recording process. Yeah. Like there isn't a single hi-hat, there's no ride, you're not going <laughs> to hear a single symbol in the whole record, and you would never miss it right. if you didn't know that, because there's so much stuff happening. And he is on the record saying that he he specifically set that limit because he wanted to see what interesting things would come out of being restricted like that. And that plays into that thing that we were talking about earlier where I, I have this limited sound palette and I really wanted to see what I could do with just these few things. And that's exactly what he did with this record. And it you know, the result is this like completely gigantic world of interesting sounds and, and the creativity that came out of that recording process where they were trying to fill the space that is usually filled with symbols, mm-hmm. um, is it's, it's amazing. You know, that record is like, um, a really dense sound world of all kinds of things, whistling and like vocals, like very deep way in the background. Kate Bush, you know, is on a couple of the songs and, yeah. and you hear her like just kind of coming in with an ah sometimes. And it's like, it's a, it's an amazing record. And uh, so, yeah, that really struck me, you know, when I was, when I read that, I was like, yes, exactly. That's, that's, <laughs> that's what I'm talking about. Right. Um, so so yeah and and of course this is the first use of uh gated reverb on drums which like you know right. thank you so much to, uh, <laughs> to the inventors of of that fantastic sound but um yeah that that's that struck me and also this record is you know it, it seems like a the diary of a madman you know it, it was it was really um shocking to people at the time how kind of dark and ugly and weird it was mm. um but i i love records like that i'm really drawn to these like kind of strange uneasy intense albums um that they're not immediately radio friendly but there's there's so much depth to them and and the idea especially you know looking at the album cover too like he embraced this ugliness and this darkness mm. and was and just put it right in front of you like this is what you're going to hear on this record and i i thought like it's kind of refreshing to see this pop star in a way you know it's this album came out in 1980 like kind of before new wave and and this like really slick 80s um look and style was the norm he was just like i'm going to I'm going to give you this like really gnarly piece of music <laughs> and it's, and it's going to be awkward and uncomfortable, <laughs> but it's, it's brilliant. Mm. Yeah. And um, I mean, speaking of the, the drums, I mean, that was the thing that really climbed out for me as well. I would think I was halfway through listening to it and then it's on Bandcamp, and one of the comments was who needs symbols. And I was like, that's a very, peculiar thing to say um <laughs> then, but it was only then that i was like Holy, i haven't heard a single symbol for the whole thing but um it is really striking um it's phil collins on drums right for for yeah. quite a lot of the album yeah he he played drums on the record and i think the the engineer that they hired i'm, I'm forgetting his name but he was working with xtc at the time and they were recording simultaneously and at some point in one of the sessions for either them or for for the Peter Gabriel record they were just doing like a test and and he was he was hitting the drum and they had like an overhead mic that was still on that was like a talkback mic or something yes. and and it was an accidental discovery and then everybody you know of course Phil Collins um then adopted the sound for his own music and you hear it on the XTC record and then you hear it throughout you know, time since then. And it, <laughs> yeah. it's especially for in the air tonight, like you can't, oh my God. you can't unhear the sound of those drums. And it's like, it just like shakes you to your core, the way it sounds. It's, it's this really like deep, um, both like very like dark and, and ephemeral sound that, you know, it's, it's, it's amazing. And, and what a wonderful accident that comes of trying to like find a way to fill a space that you've removed something from just to see what happens. Yeah. Um, is there a particular track on here out of the ones here that protrudes for you that really connects? Um, let's see. I think my favorite one is probably no self-control. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. It's a yeah. Nice that's one. a, that's the, that's one of the ones that Kate Bush is on. Um, Actually, there's a really, on, on Peter Gabriel's website, there's a great, like, photo uh, 
a bunch of photos from the recording sessions and there's a great photo of of peter and, and kate like standing in one of the rooms with like drinking wine and talking and you just kind of like wish that you were there <laughs> um but yeah that song is like it's just so dark and um and strange and haunting and there's there's just all these little sounds happening and um, you really feel like you are getting a glimpse into the mind of this person who is just, they're struggling, but they're, they're just being themselves and, and really, you know, it's, it's a cool song. I think it was one of the hits, like one of the, one of the radio singles or whatever. And like, I just can't imagine hearing it on the radio in, in 1980. Right. <laughs> um, yeah. It's, it's just such a strange song, but it's amazing. Yeah. The, uh. The Intruder was the one that is really... Uh, it's in my head right now. Um, I blame you for this, but on a, it's been spinning around since I heard it yesterday, but it's such a fabulous beat. It's probably the oh, perfect yeah. tempo. Yeah, beautiful. Yeah, that's a great album opener. Yeah, strong. I mean, also as well, uh, lyrically and everything, that you got, you're under no illusion, right, that it's about someone who's, you know, in a very kind of dark place. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the whole album is is just sort of this like embrace of someone who is really like on on the edge you know and um i don't really I've, I've never done any kind of deep dive into this but i don't know how many albums to that point are so like upfront with this um like mental illness uh battle that seems to be happening mm. from start to finish on this record um but but it really does especially the intruder you're like oh this person is is just like going around and and just terrorizing people and, <laughs> right. and just go, he knows how to get into your house and he's going to get in there right. and you know right. it's really um it, it just makes you uncomfortable mm. um but in a in a really wonderful way <laughs> yes yeah um so you say so you you reckon you probably pick this one up going to, to college i mean if you think back to say that time when you were first into this record like what other music were you listening to around the time that you came across this peter gabriel album Oh boy, not much like Peter Gabriel, probably. Um, <laughs> the The record store that I used to go to in college mainly was like a used CD and head shop uh, place that <laughs> wow. had like records in a room in the back that were mostly like unsorted, just boxes and boxes of records. Because at the time, records were not really all that fashionable and people weren't buying them, but um i would go and just like sit on the floor and pull out a couple of boxes and pour through them and i found all kinds of great stuff but i i'm sure that i saw the cover of this record and thought like whatever is going on here i need to i need to hear this <laughs> I'm in, but yeah. <laughs> uh yeah i mean at the time i was listening to mostly just like heavy metal and hardcore um i had kind of you know in my teen late teen early 20s years um, been very steeped in heavy music and while this record is not uh, a metal album it certainly is heavy in its own way and I think that probably you know I, I made exceptions it wasn't just like <laughs> I, I was certainly a music snob but I wasn't um, there were there were things that I that I let in I love Sonic Youth and I loved uh, you know some of the things that I grew up listening to I just kind of always kept in rotation but as far as like what I would just pick up and, and bring home. It was mostly just like metal and punk and, and things that were loud and brash. So I, I don't know specifically why I would have picked this up if not for that Hypnosis album cover just being so compelling. I mean, it really does, it does the, it does the work of, of making you feel like you need to know what's happening. Melissa, let's go to your second important record now, if you give me the name of it, and then again a little bit about why it's important to you too. Sure. Um, the second one I picked was Unwound's Fake Train, that um, 
This is another record that I revisited every couple of years, and I I must have been listening to it around the time because I when I first started making plans to start on the record and started making sketches of things, I, I threw together a playlist and I actually called it Sour Bell. Even it was even before I had any idea that there was going to be a song called Sour Bell, and it struck me as like a cool name for a racehorse, so I just kind of like picked it and I made this playlist <laughs> and I put. I put Honor Roses in there, which is one of the the tracks on on Fake Train, and uh, and I had been listening to it at the time, and um, it's another like really openly very grim and dark record, and it's really strange and dirty, and it's something that you know I I come back to it over and over again for nostalgic reasons, but. But this time, it kind of struck me as like, uh, you know, I could talk about all the reasons why the record is good and all the cool things about it, but the reason I chose it isn't really so easy to explain in terms of like what it is about it that appealed to me because um, ultimately, I think a lot of us cling to moments when we hear music that gets to us that we come back to over and over again because they they push certain buttons Mm -hmm. in us. And even if you're not trying to replicate the sound itself that you're hearing, like the thing that gets to you, you want to, you think about that feeling that it gives you and you want to replicate that feeling in someone else who's hearing what you're doing. Um, mm-hmm. So like something, something happens in my brain and in my body when I hear like Honorosis, when I hear this whole record. Um, and I wanted, I wanted to capture that um, and make that just the idea of creating that feeling a part of this record. And the thing itself is just not definable. It's just, it's kind of better that way though, you know, to not be able to put words to it. Yes, absolutely. Um, I mean, you mentioned there about nostalgia that gives you nostalgia. Where is that nostalgia pointing to? I don't know. It's, it's something, it's, it's kind of like, something in the chord changes or in like the harmonic sensibilities of the record that like it just reminds me of something like this like really like longing quality to it and I know a lot of that has to do with just like the construction of the song it's like the um the weirdly beautiful like chords and and harmonic sounds combined with that like kind of churning angular bass and and Sarah Lund's drumming style which is like really not very much like a hardcore band's drumming style you know Mm. it has like this groove and this dancing quality to it like the way that all of these things move together and operate alongside each other like it just kind of it makes you feel like you're being pulled towards something Mm. and and i think that that's it's just like this it just creates this kind of feeling of like being in a good in a good like wanting to be in this really good place that you've been in but you can't remember like where it is or, or or what it was that you're remembering it just like this like vague like like vapor of a memory maybe like mm. I, I can't even like tell you about a specific moment when i remember listening to the song and feeling this it just like happens every time yeah you you mentioned sarah lund there so i don't know barely anything about unwound at all i mean i was reading about this record in prep for this and i understand that she kind of this record was was it recorded first, I think, or that it came out second? Um, it was, yeah. It was recorded second, but came out first because it. they had a, a, an earlier record that they didn't release until later on. But this is the first thing that, that she's on. And, um, yeah, her her drumming style is, is, really, is really interesting. And it has, yeah, it's like this rolling kind of, like, moving quality to it that has this, like, softness and and it's complex and and you know usually hardcore is like really like firm and heavy handed mm. and 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 her style like feels more fluid and i think that really like complements the sharpness of the guitar and and you know the especially on this record like the vocals are kind of straining and and yelping um but then you know you got this undercurrent that's really you know, smooth and interesting, and, and it's such a good contrast. Yeah, because she seems to be really quite self-deprecating about her drumming performance. That's one thing I keep seeing come up on the notes is that she's 
not happy with how she's drumming but it it does sound i mean like i say i don't know any other uh, any more of their material but it, she she sounds even just listening completely fresh sounds pivotal to to how things are, are moving and how things are kind of behaving on the record out even outside of you know her kit i mean are they like a different band with that other drummer like the drummer who was prior to sarah does it is it noticeable like the impact that she had you know, I actually haven't listened to that first record in so long, and I couldn't tell you, but, you know, the sound of the band is so much her sound because mm. she was, you know, in- involved for so long. And um, and it's wild to hear that she didn't like her performance on the record. It, it just tells us, you know, we go back and, and look at things that we've done in the past that people people other people might think are are is something really brilliant but we're mm. just like oh that i did such a bad job you know like that's such a <laughs> a typical thing of, of someone who's extremely talented to go and look at something that they did that's actually amazing and think like oh, i could have done better i suppose it has a lot to do with the intention behind it right i remember reading how miles davis was like i didn't quite get kind of blue right um <laughs> which is so weird to, you know, so wacky, yeah. yeah exactly um yeah I mean, we're we're our biggest critics and and you know someone can tell you a thousand times how how brilliant that they think something that you made was but if you have it in your head that you could have done a better job no one is going to change your mind about it mm-hmm. yeah i mean do you revisit your own old material much like how does it sit with you um no i really don't um i think i had i had gone back and listened to the first ep and lp recently um when i had to do another podcast where i was talking about something from each of them and and it really is is strange to go back and hear because you know your brain starts immediately editing saying oh i could i could have done this or what you know what was what was this about why did i make this choice and and it's really um to me not not something i want to be doing on a regular basis i think that there's probably some people who like going back and revisiting their old work um i'm not personally there at this point yeah fair enough um and with fake train do you recall how this one came into your collection um, I think I remember I had a Kill Rock Stars like VHS tape from wow. I don't know when it came out, but it was just like a whole series of videos from their catalog, and it had an Unwound song on it that was from a record later than this. I certainly was not listening to Unwound in 1993, <laughs> um, but the uh, the song that was on it, I can't remember what it was. That was probably where I first heard about them, but they just in in going through my various phases of listening to to hardcore and and being into DIY music from you know various points in time I must have just come across them but I do remember the most the thing that stuck out to me the most was right around when this album came out there is a a movie that I came to years later um, called half cocked that is it's like a a road band music movie um, that Tara Jane O'Neill plays a fictional Tara in, and her brother is played by Ian Spinonius, and he's in a band, and he's like, uh, you know, real cocky, and and is always rude to her. And one day, she decides to steal his his van full of music equipment, his band's van, and her and her friends like take it on the road and pretend to be a band, <laughs> and. Um, and there are all these bands of the moment that are in that movie and Unwound is in that movie. Um, and I remember seeing them and the, uh, the opener for Fake Train, Dragonalis, is is in the movie too. And I remember hearing the song and being like, this is such a good song. <laughs> and I, I definitely like, if I hadn't already been into Unwound before then, um, I had, I had a, a stint with them at that moment. And this was like, I don't remember how long it was, but the, the movie has like a bunch of bands in it. Like Versus is in it. Um, Polvo is in it. It's just like wow. a bunch of like American DIY bands. And it's all filmed in like, I think like Tennessee and Louisville, Kentucky. And so it's kind of like an interesting look of like what the Southern like indie DIY scene was like at the time, which is not really something that you get to see that often. Um, I think that movie came out either in 93 or 94 
for, um, and I came to it probably again, like in college or something. And, uh, yeah, it's like such a cool snapshot and it's so cool to see these bands in the movie because when they go on the road, you know, they show all these bands playing and, uh, it's a cool, it's almost like the DIY version of like singles or something. (laughs) Yeah. That's a really ripe time, like early nineties, like the bands coming out then. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. It's a really cool movie. If you ever want to throw on like a really, I think it's made on like a either like a Super 8 or a VHS camera or something. So it's real low budget, but it's great. Nice. Highly recommended. And have you ever seen Unwound Live? Oh, no, no. I think, uh, I, don't, I don't even know when they broke up. Um, but no, I, I wish that I had. You see all these photos of them. Um, playing and and it looks like such a dynamic show and and like you can just like see the energy emanating from the photo Mm. um but yeah i wish i had seen them and um do you have a favorite track on fake train as well um i guess it would have to i'd have to choose honorosis as being the one for for this conversation at least because of its inclusion in that playlist but really like Giantalist, lucky acid uh, pure pain sugar i feel like star spangled hell is a pretty um apt song for the moment <laughs> um yeah i mean the whole the whole record is amazing but yeah i would i would have to go with honorosis wicked there's a one in the middle that really caught me off guard and i can't remember the name of it um but it's oh it's like no i'm not even gonna try and mangle it were are and was or is um oh yeah yeah which is really like it goes off on its own little thing there it's just like that one riff and feedback just building up around it it's a really kind of sculptural kind of jaunt they go on with that one yeah that whole um it's like a 14 minute long like combination of songs that all run together and uh yeah it really feels like this like big like uh, sonic youth kind of um mm. moment of like weirdness and beauty all like enveloping you and yeah for like a, a hardcore-ish kind of band to have that really like atmospheric moment happening it's it's a really cool island in the middle of the record yeah i feel like um it seems that a lot of the reviews at the time were kind of digging at the vocals a bit for you know being this more kind of yelpy or, or, or lacking conviction of maybe people who existed within hardcore at the time, which feels absurd now to think of like how prevalent that vocal style became, like, you know, even post millennium yeah. like, at the drive in and, and, you know, there's a whole UK post hardcore scene that feels like it's really pulling from that vocal style as well. But yeah, you know, I love it. It's great. Yeah, it is great. I, I love it too. And, and if like later on in, on Wan's career, like he does, more singy speaky kind of vocals and and way less yelping but i think that that kind of strained uh like about to fall apart kind of vocal style is absolutely perfect for this record it's like it's the the way that the sounds would come out of a person's mouth you know like everything (laughs) about this record like the, the vocals are are the perfect complement to the feeling of the rest of the album. It's like this like sharp, caustic, like anx- anxiety. Mm, yeah, there's even a track called Nervous Energy, right? It's uh, yeah. perfect. Yeah, it's perfect. Great. Well, let's go to your final important record then, Melissa. Tell me the name of it and then a little bit about why it's important to you. So my third choice is Bjork's Post. Um, I am, regretfully, I've always been late to the party with Bjork because when I was younger, I, I don't know what it was about her music that I found unappealing, but I never got into Bjork when I was younger. Um, mm. I loved her music videos. I thought <laughs> that they were 
they were great and i i liked some of the songs that i would hear on the radio but i never went and bought a bjork record i never had the desire to go and get into bjork i think i kind of had this idea about her that it was this like really wacky indie like weirdo lady who and, and i think uh, <laughs> yeah. i think you know being a person who you know growing up like i listened to a lot of pop music i listened to a lot of like different things up until i was a teenager where i got more into heavy music but i it, something about her energy like i didn't I just didn't get it at the time. So mm. I never I never really came to Bjork until honestly more recently. And um Post is her second record. Uh and the reason why I am drawn to it and why at the time it seemed significant was because the trajectory between her first record debut and this record really really appealed to me like the the jump that she made between debut and post mm. is is significant and it's not that post is a completely different record than debut it's more that there's something it has these qualities to it where you can like really feel that it's a leap forward and um and she's even said like she you know what she wanted to make a bolder more free more intense record than debut and you you can see that again in the album cover like look at the difference between debut where she's like you know it's it's her right. but she's got her hands in front of her mouth and it's kind of like this shy demure more restrained bjork and then the cover of debut is like or the cover of post is like her arms down by her sides um this like very bright bold background and everything is like hyper saturated and she's like looking right ahead and she has this like really intense like look of determination um, that really appealed to me. Mm. I thought like that, that kind of jump, like, I don't want to make a record like post, but I want to make, I want to m- progress in the, in a similar way. And that really struck me as being like a good, a good example of, of how to go from record one to record two. And what finally did it for you to check out Bjork was there something in particular that made you go oh do you know what I'll I'll buy one of her records I don't I don't know I think I just probably actually sat down and said I'm going to listen to a Bjork record and maybe it just maybe it was just the right time and my my brain was ready to accept her um and and it's one of those things where you hear it and you love it and you think like wow i was very stupid to write this off right. back in the day right. because it's it's amazing and and she's she's such an incredible musician and producer and her whole um concept of like her art world in general is so grand and so so full and and she's extremely inspirational um in in the way that like every piece of it is is so well thought out and mm. and so realized and she's you know from the videos to the album art to her like costumes and her show and, and everything like she's she's doing all of it and she's doing all of it at like 200 percent. and I, I really admire that yeah yeah and um i guess with post as well with the leap forward i mean from for what i understand this is the the first record following debut where she was in the producer's chair like this was her kind of vision for the sound as opposed to um collaborating more with with someone else which i guess is also falls into that image that you've um put forward of her coming forward and being super colorful and full of this conviction like she took the wheel on this one yeah she she co-produced it with the the producer that she had worked with for debut was involved but also she brought in like tricky did a couple of songs and 808 states graham massey um did a couple and and so yeah she she actually was was part of that um that end of the record instead of just you know performing like she was really like everything about the record is is in her hands and she you know she had just moved to london i think when yes. she was making this so she was hanging out in clubs and and being around all these electronic producers and so she wanted to bring a lot of that energy into the music and and that's like you know you you hear it and it's not like as as much of a dance record as as debut is i think debut is 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 more overtly uh dancier but uh 
the way that she incorporates that like club music sound in post is like so interesting because mm. you know there's so much stuff happening there's a lot of like weird sounds and interesting production choices and that to me is like that's Bjork's brain you know like all those <laughs> all those like choices that you would never think to make like she's doing those things and and for her um, like songs like headphones, like headphones is not a, a song you would hear in a club. Um, nope. That apparently was a, a song that she wrote as a gift to Graham Massey, but it's also proof that she was just like completely doing her own thing. <laughs> Expectations and commercial acceptance be damned. She was just like, I'm going to make the record that I want to make regardless of like how it's going to come across. And I'm going to put like the weirdest stuff in there and you're going to accept it because <laughs> this is my vision. Yeah. yeah. Um, and do you have a favorite track? Oh, Let's see. I have to look at the track list for that one. Yeah, it's a toughie. Man, yeah, that's a yeah. I guess for for sheer intensity, I love enjoy. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, that's just like such a cool song, and it's so intense, and um, it's heavy and and brash, and like just like a. I think Graham Massey might have worked with her on this one. Um, but it's really like it's an earworm like i get i get that like like just stuck in my brain on a loop um but yeah that that track is good hyper ballad is amazing Mm. um a lot of these songs have incredible videos that you can't like dissociate in your mind with them once you've seen them so you know like the video for it's so so quiet is something like way back before I was accepting a Bjork. Um, <laughs> I had I've had this like box set of of various music di- music video directors work, and she's worked with every single one of the good ones, you know. So she's got work on every single one, <laughs> and the "It's Oh So Quiet" video um, is one that like really, really like that song is is unlike any of the other songs on the record, and it's it's also kind of an earworm. But um, that video, like, is also seared in my memory um, as being this, like, like the the Bjorkiest thing where she's, like, she's, like, dancing around. It's kind of, like, Umbrellas of Cherbourg style. Um, she's, like, in a dress. I think it's, like, this bright yellow dress. And she's just, like, dancing through the streets and all these people are dancing with her. Mm. Um, but, yeah, yeah. So, I honestly, I love all the songs on this record. But I guess I would have to go with Enjoy if I wanted to, like, put one out in front of people to listen to yeah because that one i feel like that that's the kind of one that if you're not fully behind it when you're making it it could have turned out an absolute mess like you could have heard it and been like i know what they were trying to do but it just does not fit because the baseline is just basically just bulldozing the rest of the song right it's it's oh, fantastic yeah, yeah it's definitely the thing that's out in front even when she's like howling and joy in the background that bass is still just like right there um Mm. but and i love that i mean you can never have too much bass (laughs) true enough um and yeah i wanted to ask you about it so so quiet because i um i feel like that that song is just so much in just common cultural consciousness that i really struggle to fit it into this record or probably any record but i just hear it and i'm like I, I just can't fit it into the picture of post i feel like that's on me rather than on post like i feel like maybe someone who's approached it as its own work as a, as a coherent thing would would probably hear it as a totally legit piece of that puzzle but i mean how do you hear it does it feel like it fits into the picture for you it doesn't but i think that's why it does right yeah right you know because it's because it's a bjork record and and yeah. she's just like i'm this is this is this totally out in left field, different thing than anything else you're going to hear on the record, but I'm going to put it right in the middle and it's going to have this like big flashy music video that Spike Jones is going to, you know, <laughs> make people, you know, never forget. And it's like really, um, that's like the most Bjorkian choice mm-hmm. to make is to put this totally absurd, very different, very bright for the rest of the record the rest of the record is so dark and the song is just like this ray of sunshine mm. just like right smack in the middle of the record like i'm you know i have no way to justify it because i don't understand it either but it really is just like <laughs> it makes sense because it doesn't yes yeah um 
And have you seen her play live? No, no. I guess <laughs> I see I see live music so rarely. I guess unless it's like a, a local like DIY show or in the rare instance that I go travel to see something. People tend not to come to New Orleans that often um, because we're not uh, we're way down here in right. the in the touring in the touring um, usual like common sense. Uh, traveling through the south line because you have to kind of jog down but obviously for Bjork that's not an issue but I can't remember any time that she's played here and I honestly don't know her more recent work that well Mm. Um, and I I know she's released music in the past few years and and it's gotten great attention and, and she's still doing her own thing in her own way and is totally you know she's a superstar you know she does whatever she wants and it and everyone loves it um but i i just haven't i just haven't sat down with those records maybe again that's my mistake and i'm doing it again by (laughs) by ignoring them but um yeah so i guess i haven't um i haven't gotten into her her recent stuff enough to to like go and seek her out live yeah fair enough i mean to be honest i see i have sort out those recent records and some i've really enjoyed and the last one i've really struggled with and wanted to really? like with all of my heart and mind and can't get through it i just think it's uh I, and and I, i'm probably in the same boat that you are where it's like um i will visit this in 20 years and be like oh, you fucking stupid man like this is brilliant <laughs> you just didn't know it at the time but um yeah i mean it's all about like where you're at Mm -hmm. when you when you get it and so yeah there's always going to be that music that you look back on and think like i blew it i should have been listening to this all (laughs) along but it would have never struck you in the way that it needed to for it to really get to you when you're in a totally different place like you know the the, there's countless bands that i can think of that like i always wish that i had heard when they were active when i was younger but they, I, w- I never would have understood it right. at the time. Exactly. So you know, it's okay. We have to give ourselves some credit for for at least going back and revisiting because you know you could easily just write write things off permanently and never give things a chance. Yes. So you know that at least you know being open to receiving it at some point, you know, having that that door, you know, at the ready and not just like ignoring an artist like into into infinity because you just decided that's never gonna be for me <laughs> yeah exactly like, so that's that's something but yeah i think i feel that's that's what friends are good for is they'll mention a name and um sort of pressure you quietly into giving it another go against your better judgment yes that's yeah. brought some great discoveries for me yeah for sure me too My final question for you, Melissa, is uh, when you really want to listen to an album and you you really want to get into it and hear it in, you know, all its glory, we've spoken about driving being a nice context for doing that. Is there anywhere else that you go or any other setup that you have for really listening to an album like that? Um, I listen to almost everything over like studio monitor headphones um Mm. the you know you hear everything that way and and that's kind of my preferred method of listening um and then you know putting on a record and and sitting in your living room and just kind of like letting it wash over you is is certainly like a great experience but if i really want to know what something is about the the kind of isolated headphones method is is the way to go 100 percent of the time wicked um well this has been amazing thank you so much for talking through i mean both your new album but also these three important records i've had a a great time melissa oh me too thank you so much for having me and if people want to check out your music uh, once again where's the best place for them to be doing that 
Um, mjguider.bandcamp.com is where you can find my latest record and all of the previous music and mjguider.com is my website and I'm on Instagram and I just joined Twitter, which is a weird place, but <laughs> there I am. Um, so you can find me on both of those sites as well. Magic. Cool. Well, thank you once again. And to everyone listening, I'll see you next time. Goodbye. Thanks. Bye.